Saul Cruz Ramos was born in the mountains of Oaxaca in 1954. After his conversion to Christianity as a young man, he developed this all-consuming passion to bring transformation and hope to poor communities in Mexico. So he applied to the best universities he got in, which was remarkable as an indigenous student from the mountains. He studied psychology at one of the best universities in Mexico. And then when he finished, he decided instead of setting up his practice among people who could pay for his services, he decided along with his wife Pilar and their children to devote their lives to walking alongside the poor by founding Armonia. One example of their work is in the Jalapa Ravine, one of the largest slums in Mexico City, where they established an urban transformation center right on top of the city's largest garbage dump. Slowly, slowly they gained the trust of residents there just by living in their midst, and they began to dream together about what solutions in an, what seemed like an impossible situation would look like. And today, almost 30 years later, Armenia supports three of these urban transformation centers in that slum. And they represent this collaborative effort of together with these communities, transforming poverty into life through programs in health and education and nutrition, entrepreneurship, art, house construction, emergency relief, counseling, biblical training, and all of that in the context of just doing life together as a community. Saul also launched an educational initiative in Oaxaca to serve the indigenous young people who rarely have the opportunity even to finish high school, let alone enter into some of the best universities. So he established a student residence where students could come from the mountains, be mentored to finish their high school programs, and then also be mentored uh, through those entrance exams and placed in some of the best universities in Mexico with this commitment that they would come back fully trained to be catalysts for change in their villages. It's an amazing program. So in addition to all of that, Saul worked for a time as the national director of World Vision Mexico. He won an international award for designing homes that would shift along with shifting garbage. He launched the National Association of Indigenous Translators in Mexico. And on and on and on. I mean, I could spend five minutes just talking about all the various awards he won and accomplishments. But for me, Saul was first and foremost someone who showed me what it actually looks like to embrace and follow Jesus in the everyday. Oh, when I worked as a youth pastor in St. Louis, Steph and I led teams several trips down to, to work with Armonia and Saul. And we were so captured by his vision, by his life, by his example, that we decided to join their work. And we worked there for a time. We moved there. We joined in all the work that they were doing, which often include, included traditional Mexican dancing, because something they did really well within these really dire situations is just celebrate life together. And they did that through dancing. But this was exhausting work. It was frustrating work. Uh, but it was exhilarating work, and it was inspiring work, especially seeing someone like Saul live out his vision to be a follower of Jesus in what at times seemed like a hopeless situation. He's someone who lived and breathed the way of Jesus. That was six years ago that we worked with Armonia, 
but it's, it's very fresh in my mind because just recently Saul died of a heart attack, 60 years old. And I'm, I'm grieving this and I'm reflecting on the death and, and the life of, of Saul, this man who showed me the way of Jesus. And as I've been doing that, I was, I was just struck by his obituary that uh, was printed in the Mexico's national newspaper. It's a beautiful obituary. It speaks of humanity losing a great man, Mexico losing a leader, indigenous people losing a champion, the church losing a faithful brother, psychologists losing a pioneer, friends and family losing a Christ-like example. Uh, And then at the end it says this, heaven has gained a citizen whose arrival, we are sure, has increased the joy of everybody. In the eternal moment, which includes now, our beloved Saul is hearing the voice of his king, his king saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come, share in your master's happiness. That's from Matthew 25, 23. Um, when I read that, I'm moved. And, and not only do I praise God and celebrate Saul's life, but it immediately makes me think of my own life. How am I spending my life? This is something I reflected on a lot when I lived and worked with Saul, but sometimes I forget to stop and, and reflect on that question. What do I want Jesus to say to me when I finish my race? What do I want my obituary to say? How do I want to spend my life? Those are the questions that this series is really all about. And we've talked about various issues in this series. We've talked about money, talked about stuff. We've talked about relationships. But underneath it all is this question, how are you spending your life? How do you desire to spend your life? Do you want to spend it for yourself? Or do you want to spend it as part of a greater mission? A mission that's going to have lasting impact. A mission that's going to help you flourish and others flourish. Our vision here at Warehouse 242 is that God is making all things new. That's God's mission. And we get to be a part of it by loving God and loving people and loving the places where we live with everything that we are and everything that we have. That's the gist of our vision. Now, that's how I want to spend my life. I don't know about you. That, that's worthwhile to me. And I believe it's also the most satisfying and the most life-giving and the freest way to live as well. Each one of Jesus' parables, which we've been looking at throughout this series, is a window into that mission of God to make all things new. I think Jesus is opening a window and letting us see a little bit of what it means to experience that kind of mission, what it means to participate in it, have a part in it. And Jesus told these parables, these short stories, as he's traveling around first century Judean world. And it's a politically charged world. So a lot of what he's saying about God's realm of newness coming to bear on that life was, um, was confusing at times, and it, and it intersected with these other spheres of political rule and economic rule and personal rule. It was challenging. And we need to understand some of that challenge, some of that background, to then look at how this parable applies directly to us today. So we're going to be looking at another parable. This one's called the parable of the ten minas. 
um, mina is a, is a form of currency in the ancient world. And this is a parable that's found in Luke's biography as well, and it's in chapter 19. So if you actually have a Bible with you, or if you have one on your phone, I'd encourage you to flip there. It's good to see the context and kind of follow along with me. Um, but otherwise, everything's going to be up on the screen as well. Um, there's a similar version of this parable in Matthew. Uh, Jesus taught these parables probably several times, and so it makes sense. We have one version in Matthew, we have another version in Luke. They're not exactly the same, probably because Jesus didn't teach it exactly the same every time. Um, but both of them include that phrase that was in Saul's obituary. Well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and so uh, th- this is just very heavy on my heart and mind right now. It's, it means a lot to me personally um, as I've entered into this parable and try to figure out what Jesus is saying because I want him to say that to me. I don't know if that's where you are this morning, but this is really important. Um, as we look at it, we're going to do so first by looking at the background and then getting into what this means for us. So uh, Luke 19.11, it sets up the situation. Jesus had been uh, just visiting with a tax collector named Zacchaeus, which is a pretty scandalous visit in that culture. People didn't understand, so who's explaining that? And, and then the story continues in verse 11. It says, while they were listening to this, Jesus trying to explain why he would hang out with a tax collector, um, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So here's what's going on. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, kind of nearing the end of his, his journey, which is the center of the Jewish world. And people are expecting something really big to happen. Because in the last couple of years, as Jesus was teaching and, and going around this world, everything that Jesus said and everything that he did was, pointing, was leading some people to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the one who had been promised that, he, that was going to return and restore the kingdom of God, this kingdom that had reached its pinnacle under the rule of King David, but then since then really had been disintegrating for various reasons, political battles, moral failures of leaders, religious pluralism, rule by foreign powers. Um, and throughout that topsy-turvy history since David, prophets have been continuing to remind the Jewish people this Messiah is coming. The king is going to return. He's going to reestablish the kingdom, restore this nation, spread its influence through the whole world. So people, if Jesus is the Messiah, this is what they are expecting to happen once the Messiah reached Jerusalem. So that was going to be it. Roman rule was going to be out. God's rule was going to be in, mediated by Jewish leaders. But things weren't going to shake down that way. That's not what was going to happen. So Jesus is just telling this parable to prepare people with that expectation, people with ears to hear, and to help them know what was actually coming. So we'll pick up in verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. I mean, it was was about a hundred days, pay for a hundred days' labor. He says, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Okay, so going back to the political situation, there was a very recent political memory that would have been, lights would have been going off in people's memories when they heard Jesus tell this. Uh, Because Herod the Great, 
was the Roman ruler over this area of the ancient world at the time, over this area of the, in the Middle East. Or I should say he was. He, he reigned over this area called Judea for 70 years, a long reign, and he died in 4 BC, right around the time of Jesus' death. And Herod's realm then passed to his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Now Archelaus was a pretty nasty guy. He, he had been going around killing a lot, lot of Jews before Herod the Great died. And he went to Rome, a distant country, to confirm his appointment as Tetrarch over Judea and Samaria, the light green part. Well, the Jews didn't want him to be ruler over them because he was such a brutal guy. So they sent an emissary of 50 leaders to try to oppose it. So we don't want this guy to be king over us. We don't want him to be ruler. Um, and as much as they tried to get him kicked out of the line of succession, it didn't work. He returned as Tetrarch. He returned to rule. And they knew that there was going to be consequences for not lining up with his agenda, as he had proved before. If they weren't doing his business when he returned, it would not go well for them. So that's what they're thinking. As Jesus is telling this parable, they're like, oh, like Archelaus. That's what they're, they're remembering. And so the newly minted king has returned, and we pick it up in verse 15. Here's what's going to happen. He sent for the servants to whom he had given the money, in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you. Because you're a hard man. If you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, didn't you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, well, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's tough. Uh, but before talking about how this relates directly to us, remember the context. Okay, it's important to understand how the original audience would have heard this and received this. And given the, the context I've already mentioned, here's how I would explain the overall message that people heard in that original context. They would have heard, right, just like Archelaus went away and then returned to, to Judea and punished people who didn't align with his agenda, so God is going to return to Jerusalem and do the same. People aren't going to want him king. People aren't going to want to listen to him. And really, only a small number of people are going to align with his real agenda. And implied behind that as well, as Jesus is telling this, is Jesus is saying, I am the God who's going to return to Jerusalem and do this. When I arrive, most people aren't going to recognize me as the king they're hoping for. And only some people really will be committed to God's true agenda. And it's going to be disastrous for Israel. 
also implied there is, will you be one of them? Will you be one of them that opposes me as true king? So it's important to understand, thousands of years before this, God had given his people, the Israelite, the Jewish people, a beautiful blueprint for how they were supposed to live. It's called the law. And at the core of that blueprint, at the core of the law, is this idea that people were supposed to spend their lives loving God and loving people. That's their commission as God's people. That's what they're supposed to be all about. And Jesus is foreshadowing that when he arrives to restore this kingdom that God has promised about for thousands of years, very few people will be living out that commission. Here's what Jesus is going to find. Jesus is going to find religious leaders vying for the next position, vying for more clout. They're not serving the people. They're serving themselves. Jesus is going to find money lenders in the temple swindling people out of their money who are just trying to exchange what they have for a sacrifice to relate to God. He's going to find cheaters. He's going to find people who are obsessed with mastering all of these outward rules and figuring out exactly what all of these rules mean, but inside they're, they're void of real love for God and real love for people. So Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem and find a lot of people who claim to know God, who claim to know his promises, but who are spending their lives in all the wrong ways. And there's only going to be a few who are really doing God's work, who are really spending their lives as God has intended, and they're going to be in the shadows, they're going to be in the margins, they're going to be outside the Jewish people. It's scandalous. And so when Jesus arrives things aren't shaken down like people expected them. He's not a military king. He's not coming to kick out the Romans. He's coming to be king, but he's coming to be king over this kingdom without national boundaries, as he's explaining it, one, one that is going to spread through the whole world. And it's not going to spread through, through military advances. It's going to spread through things like serving people and demonstrating God's love and, and persevering under suffering. And all of that kicks off, because Je- not, not because Jesus leads some kind of amped-up campaign for himself. No, all of it kicks off when Jesus is executed. Not what people expected. At all. He's executed, and then he comes back to life. Now, just stopping right there, I, I think that is remarkable. I think it's remarkable that here is God wanting to restore his kingdom, make his, his good rule of newness and life spread through the entire world. And how does he do it? How is God establishing himself as king over his people and over all of creation? He's doing it by becoming the least, like a servant. He's coming by, he's doing that by, by suffering for people and suffering in their place. So here's the first way I think this parable applies to our situation, as we understand who Jesus is. Because we understand, once we see what Jesus has done, that he is this perfect servant. He is the faithful servant. And he is taking all of the, the punishment that, that people deserve who consider themselves unfaithful, who consider themselves that, that wicked servant who wasted God's commission which I put myself in that camp. 
think probably all of us are in that camp of unfaithful servants. And so that Jesus is saying, and this is something they wouldn't understand until after his death and resurrection, I am the faithful one. And I have suffered to forgive anyone who considers themselves the unfaithful one. And the story doesn't end there because Jesus comes back to life and he gives those who believe and follow him a new commission. He's going to remind them what life should be all about as they seek to follow him and follow God. And this is recorded in one instance in Matthew 28. I'm just going to paraphrase these words. They're familiar to you. I think it's good for you to hear them in a different way if you're not familiar uh, with these words. Maybe this paraphrase will help. As Jesus is saying in Matthew 28, because I am king over everything, go through the whole world and bring more people under my allegiance. Help them realize that I'm king. Baptize them to signify that allegiance to me and teach them to do everything that I did. Teach them to be everything that I am because that is how they're going to flourish. That's how they're going to experience fullness of life. And when you go out on that mission, I'm going to be with you. So you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be, feel insignificant. I'll be with you. So here's the application for those of you who follow Jesus. This is the commission, I believe, that's represented by the ten minas in Jesus' parables. Jesus going away, but giving his followers a commission. Here's how I want you to live. I want you to submit to me as king. And I want you to demonstrate that submission and that allegiance in everything that you are and everything that you do. And I want you to invite as many people as possible to join you in that journey. That's it. In other words, um, our, our commission, if you're following Jesus, your commission is not just to embrace Jesus as Savior, not just to embrace him as the one who was the faithful servant who took the punishment of an unfaithful servant to forgive you of your sins. Yes, you need to do that, and you need to embrace Jesus as king, as the one who deserves your ultimate allegiance more than anything else in life, as the one who invites you to spend your life as he did, creatively and generously and humbly, using all of your gifts, all of your skills, all of your passions, all of your influence to spend your life for others. So that's your commission if you're a follower of Jesus. That's how God wants you to spend your life. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope this parable motivates you to find out who or what you are following. Because all of us follow someone or something. All of us have someone or something to whom we ascribe ultimate allegiance, and our lives are following that. So it could be, it could be a religious figure like the Buddha. It could be a principle like justice. That is what you're, you're pursuing in your life. Or it could be something more tangible like success or money or respect or beauty. But there is something that you're following something that you are spending your life for. And Jesus wants you to wrestle with what that is. If you don't know what you're following, actually, let me pause there. I think sometimes we don't know what we're following. Even if we claim that Jesus is king, sometimes we're confused about what our life is all about. I mean, 
Maybe you feel like, I, I barely know who I'm following on Twitter or who my friends are on Facebook. I, I don't know what, I'm, what my life is following, right? Another rabbit trail. I'm sorry. My brain is going all over the place. Supposedly this week, uh, I think it was in River Oaks, California, uh, they had to notify all the citizens not to call 911 if, if Facebook crashed. Because supposedly this was happening. The Facebook would crash. People were like, 911, what am I going to do? I don't know where Shelly is right now. Um, I don't know why that came into my mind, but um, maybe that's an indicator of, of what we're following if that's such a big deal. Um, point is, if you don't know who or what you're following, what you need to do is you need to reflect on how you're spending your life. That will tell you who or what you're following. You need to figure out how am I actually spending my time? How am I spending my money? How am I spending my skills and my influence and my energy? That's going to tell me what my ultimate allegiance is. And this is really good to do whether or not you're a follower of Jesus because let's say that you claim Jesus as king. You say, yes, my allegiance is to Jesus. Well, you, it's possible to profess that but to live as a practical atheist. When you actually look at the way that you're spending your life, that might not align. And it's crucial to figure out if it does or it doesn't. And it's crucial to know what to do then and what that means. So whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, it's, it's critical to ask, how am I spending my life? How do I desire to spend my life? Not just what's happening currently. To help you do that, I want to provide a really practical exercise that I want all of you to do, preferably today, before the Super Bowl, before you forget, but at least sometime this week. It's called Write Your Own Obituary. I learned about this exercise from my friend Kurt. Um, It's a beautiful exercise because what what it's going to do is it's going to take you through this fill-in-the-blank exercise to, to write your own obituary. The point is not to describe who you are currently, The point is to describe who you desire to be. How do you want to spend your life? And the challenge is to do that and then talk about it with somebody else. And if you're a follower of Jesus, does that align with his commission on your life? Does this really align with your biggest dreams and your biggest vision for who you can be? And if not, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to take that into conversation with God and address those things? and with friends, and with your family. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think this can be an amazing exercise for you as well to reflect on who or what you are actually following. And I hope it spurs you on to consider really how you want to be spending your life, and if you're there already or not. Most of us, I think, would admit that we're not, and we need a course correction. Jesus wants to provide a course correction And he wants to provide hope. Because this is where Christianity is amazing. Uh, Where the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is remarkable. Because Jesus has given us a commission to spend our lives for others. But that is grounded in the reality that Jesus has spent himself for you already. That he has given you life. He's given you hope. He's given you forgiveness. And out of then gratitude, we are able to take up this new way of life, of spending ourselves for others. We don't, 
We don't set this goal and spend ourselves for others in order to seek perfection or seek approval from God or, or seek just to become better people. It comes out of deep gratitude and deep joy over what God has already done for us in Jesus. That's, that's the genius of Christianity. There's no religion like it. And I love that we get to celebrate communion because that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating Jesus spent for us so that we can have life. Without that, there can't be the life that we hope for and dream for. So communion is this opportunity to remember and celebrate that good news. And we do this often because Jesus encouraged his followers to do so when he was eating a last meal with his followers right before he died. Um, he, he shared bread and he shared wine with them as symbols to help them remember. He said, every time you meet, do this so that you remember, so that you remember because if you don't remember, you're going to get off course. And so that's why we celebrate communion together. And we do it with uh, simple loaves of bread or crackers and wine or grape juice. Because when Jesus was eating with his friends, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it in front of them. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. So remember, this is how I am spending myself for you so that you can have new life. And then he took a cup of wine, one that they probably shared, shared around with each other. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood, a new way of relating to God. It's going to be based on my death and resurrection. It's going to be poured out for you. My, my blood is going to be poured out for you so that you can have life. So do it in remembrance of me. So as we celebrate communion Know that Jesus' death is for you. No matter however you have spent your life, in poor ways or good ways, Jesus' sacrifice is for you. So claim that hope, claim that salvation, claim that life. You know, another purpose of communion is to recognize our commission. So if we believe that, if we receive it, Jesus is then inviting us into a way of life where we are loving God and loving others, spending ourselves for them. And part of what that looks like in a community like this is forgiving each other, seeking reconciliation where there are any broken relationships. But traditionally, communion has been a time, as people start milling around, when you can go directly to someone that you need to say, will you forgive me for this? Or receive the forgiveness that they ask for? Pursuing those relationships that are broken because healed relationships, relationships in which forgiveness is the reality, that demonstrates the love that God has for us in Jesus. So if you need to do that today, I would, I would really encourage you to do that either immediately to someone face-to-face or maybe you need to call somebody as people are milling around or maybe you need to text somebody, whatever it is, do it now. This is your time to demonstrate the kind of love that God has for you in Jesus by forgiving one another. So the way it's going to work is we're going to circle up into various groups around the room. There will be a gluten-free station in the back. And in those circles, the bread will go around first, and you take a little bit of bread off that loaf. And then the cup will go around, which has wine or grape juice in it. Dip the bread in, and then wait for everyone to get that because it's a way for us to recognize we're doing this together. We have communion with each other. So receive that together, and then the person will pray, and the next group can come up.
And as we enter into this time and as the servers come up, let me pray for us. <clears throat> I want to start by thanking you, Jesus, that you have spent your life for us so that in you we can be counted faithful. Thank you, Jesus, for being the faithful one. And may we find ourselves in you. We want to put your trust in you. We want to put our hope in you. Find our freedom in you and joy in you. So meet us during this time um, and convict us if necessary um, and move us to ask for or receive forgiveness. Uh, this could be a pattern in our life. Um, encourage us, give us joy. Help us take the next step in your commission on our lives to spend ourselves as part of your mission to make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name.